We, would, we pray you would find faith in our hearts as you awaken your church and save the lost through a fresh outpouring of your spirit. Let's continue to pray. Father, we also come to you to pray in accordance with what your word has told us to pray. For all of those in leadership and authority over our lives, that we may live a quiet and a peaceable life. And so we pray, Father, you've not called us to agree or disagree, like or not like. You've called us as your church to pray. And so we pray for our president and for all those in our federal government, from our Speaker of the House to the head of the Senate, to our Supreme Court, all the way down through, that you would give them the strength and grace and the wisdom to make decisions that affect the people of this nation from a position of righteousness and truth and in accordance with what you want, that your will may be done and that your kingdom may come. We pray for them that they have wisdom to lead this nation through the various crises that we're facing right now. We pray for our local governors, especially Governor Raimondo and Governor Baker. Father, we pray for them that you would continue to protect them, give them strength, give them grace, give them the wisdom to know what to do each step of the way. We thank you, Father, that they, that they have that wisdom. When we ask you to continue to surround them with men and women of God who know your voice and know your spirit, that they will give you counsel, give them godly counsel and godly wisdom. For man does not uh, have an answer to these things. And so we must look to you and put our trust in you. And Father, we pray for the other pastors in this area, that you would help them and strengthen them to continue to guide the people that you have entrusted to them. And we pray for this leadership in this church and for this body, that you would continue to give us the wisdom and the grace, not just to get through these times, but to be able to have the vision for what you want to do in this land through your church and through your body. And we pray today for people may, that may be discouraged or may be struggling, people that may have lost loved ones or may be battling this virus right now. We pray, first of all, that you would encourage them and strengthen us, Father. Help us to have a fresh vision and hope, especially hope, Father, that there is a will that you have for our lives right now and that you are here with us and you are empowering us and enable us and you are strengthening us so that we can grow and continue to mature and fulfill the purpose for which you have placed us here. And for these things, we give you thanks. We pray for those, Lord, that it protect our lives from the police, Lord, to the government. Therefore, you have ordained those authorities in our lives to keep the people from in, in a place of peace. And Father, we are aware that there are people, Lord, there are, there are people that have abused that authority for their own purposes. And we ask you to open the eyes of their understanding. But we also pray for those, Lord, who put their lives on the line on a regular basis, whose hearts are right and whose purpose is right, and who are sacrificing their comfort and their well-being for our sake. And we pray for them also, Father. Heal this land and heal your church, Father. We pray for this body that you would bring us and draw us to a place of unity of faith, unity of love, and unity of the Spirit that your love and your grace and your gospel may go forth from this body to bring healing to this land, the land in which you placed us. We pray for the wisdom to do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Father, let's continue to pray. We pray now as we turn to your word. You have ordained prayer. You have ordained the preaching of your word to feed your sheep. You set Peter out with the instructions to feed your sheep. You've instructed us to feed us with the Word of God. Father, we're living in an age when there are many voices out there, many, many opinions, and through social media, they're all over the place. But all we have to go in upon is your Word. And Father, I pray today, as I've already sought you, that I ask you today through the, through the grace of the Holy Spirit to allow me to only speak as it were the Word of God that we need to hear and help us to receive as the Apostle Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, help us to recognize that these words are not the Word of man, but these are the words of a holy, almighty God spoken out of love by a father to his children. And may we have hearts to appreciate that it is the Word of God spoken to us. And may we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying 
to Faith Christian Center and to all of us this day. And that can only happen by the working and anointing of your precious spirit. And upon him do we rely today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. As I was getting ready this morning and praying and meditating on what God's given me to share with us today, I began to think of what Jesus said in the book of Revelation, what he writes to the seven churches, and it's so important to recognize this, and I've referred to this before, is that that it it tells us several things. For those of you that may not have read the book of Revelation or you're you're relatively new, uh, Jesus in the last book that he, he basically dictated to the Apostle John near the end of the first century, near the end of the Apostle's life when all the other Apostles have been martyred and gone on and John alone is left and he's been, uh, he's been um, uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And Jesus, while he's on the Lord's Day, while he was in the Spirit, he'd been praying and he was in tune with the Spirit of God, Jesus appears to him and tells him, I want to tell you things that are to come, and I'm telling you this to give you a hope and a confidence. So the book of Revelation is not to scare us, it's to give us confidence and hope that God does know the future, that the future is in His hands, that He does have a plan, and that He wants to use us in that plan and in that future. But in the beginning of it, He tells the Apostle John to write a letter to seven different churches that were then in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey now. And in each of these letters, he says something different to each church. And that's important for us to recognize because it tells us second thing. First of all, Jesus is the head of the church. And he is the head of this church. Now, there are churches he's not the head of because they don't belong to him. They're doing their own thing. But our endeavor here is to be head. This is his church and to to be here for His purposes. So the first thing we see is Jesus is the head of the church. Secondly, He knows the status of each individual churches, and He sees us individually, both in terms of where we are spiritually and what His purpose is for us. He has a different purpose for each church. There's a general purpose, but a different purpose for each church. And he knows exactly what's right and exactly what's wrong. And he tells John to write to them and tell them, this you've been doing right and this you've not been doing right. And then he tells them what to do to make the corrections. And and in most of them, which we'll talk about today, he says, and he who overcomes, and there's a specific promise given to each church for each church that overcomes. And that's what we're going to talk about today because there are obviously things each of us individually and each of us as a church need to overcome. And if it's something we have to overcome, it must be something that's in our way. It must be something that's blocking us, slowing us down, distracting us. It is some weapon of the enemy to get us to stop, to get us off track, and it can appear in many different forms. And, and then he says, he who overcomes, I will give this, and there's a different promise for each one of them. And then he ends it with these words. Now, if Jesus is saying this, and he says it earlier to his disciples when he's on this earth walking among them, when he teaches them the parable of the sower, but now he says it to the specific churches, Jesus has spoken to the church. In some cases, he's warned them. In some cases, he's corrected them. And then he ends and says... He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. That tells me that the Spirit's speaking to us, but it's possible for the Spirit to speak to us and not hear what He has to say. How could that happen? Well, Sometimes we don't hear because we don't want to hear. It's called selective hearing, and all of those that have children or have been a child know what that means because when you tell your child to do the things they don't want to do, they have trouble hearing. But when you tell your child it's time for ice cream, they have wonderful hearing. Well, the same is true of us. We tend to block out things we perceive are going to make us do something, make us uncomfortable, things we don't want to look at, 
But those are invariably the things the Spirit of God knows we need to look at. So one of the things that blocks it is that. Other things that can block it is pride. I don't need to hear. I know. I know. I know. I don't even need to listen to him today. I already know what he's going to... I already know this. I've heard this before. And what you don't realize is when you do that, you block... you put yourself in a dangerous place because you put a wall up and you say, God, I, I will not hear from you. Well, if you tune God out, you've opened your ear to hear from someone else that's out there And this person comes only to... This is Satan. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I don't know why I'm off on this right now. But we need to make sure that every day we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And that doesn't happen overnight. It happens because we're spending time in His Word. We're spending time talking to Him. But we're also being willing to listen to Him. And especially in practical things of your life, little things. One of the things we practice that in, this is not the message at all, one of the things we practice that in is everyday little things. And, and it's just, you know, we lose something. Instead of tearing the house up, trying to figure out where it is, we've learned to go to the Holy Spirit and ask Him, you know where that is, show us where it is. It happened this week. Anita has a favorite Bible that she has. It's a paperback Bible. It's written all over, starting to come apart, and she's not been able to find it for a while. And we kind of prayed a little bit about it. But this week she was out doing something else and I sat down on the couch and I said, I'm not going to tear this house apart. You know where that is and I want to hear from you where that is. And I'd love to tell you the skies open, a light shone down and pointed where it was or I heard a voice. I just started acting on that and began to just kind of walk around and look and all of a sudden the thought came to me to look behind our couch And as I looked behind the couch, there was a yellow bag. I don't even know how it got there. And I opened the bag, and sitting on top of the bag was the Bible we've been looking for for two weeks. Now, what did that do? All right? It developed confidence in me that I can hear what he has to say. Now, as a pastor of a church, that's critical that I be able to hear what he has to say. Do I always hear clearly? No. Have I mi- not listened many times? All right. But it's a, it's, a, it's a skill. It's a sensitivity that's developed by experience. And it's much safer to start with where's the lost Bible than, you know, change of careers, you know, stepping out into things that are dangerous. But as you learn to grow in this, you learn to have confidence in the more difficult things in life. And we are in a time when we've got to learn to hear what the Spirit is saying because the experts in the world with all their good intentions and sometimes not good intentions, they don't know. And I'm going to let you in on a secret if you promise not to tell anybody. Apart from the Spirit of God, I don't know what to do either. And if you're following anybody that thinks they know what to do, be very careful because they're trusting in their wisdom. It's time to get into the message. <laughs> well, it fits into it. We began to talk last week about how we're in, in a time of unprecedented pressure, at least it's unprecedented for us. I think there's been this kind of pressure before. We never lived through World War II. We didn't live through other horrible times that have gone through. But for our experience in my lifetime, and that's equivalent at least to the span of most of our lifetimes, um, this is unprecedented pressure. And it's pressure from, you know, from all over the world. It's not just in pockets. And, so, but, and, and that causes the things that we've been trusting our lives to to get shaken And when the things that we put our trust in, the things that have always been the source of stability, get shaken, then we find out, then we can get shaken. And what we've been talking about is that is a, we- a sign, to re- like an alarm clock I talked about last week, to wake up and realize, wait a minute, if I'm shaken right now, then that tells me that I have based my life on and put my trust in things that can be shaken because that's why I'm shaken. And we look at Jesus in Matthew 24. Jesus sat down with his disciples in Jerusalem and he was looking at the temple, which at that time was these huge granite stones, enormous things. Some of you have been, been to Jerusalem. You've seen the wall of that temple and, it, it, and things that were unshakable. And Jesus sits there and says, there's coming a day when every stone of that temple will be shaken and come down. And that shook them because 
That's what was the most stable. It wasn't just the building. It was what it represented. It was the temple of God. It was God's presence. It was the sign of God's authority and God's dominion. That temple was existing in Jerusalem in the center of Israel. And it was a sign of God's presence. It was a holy place to them. And Jesus is saying there's going to come a time when even that's going to come down. And so they began to ask the question, well, if that's going to happen, how do we know it's going to happen? What are the signs of that time? And Jesus began to describe those to him. We went through some of them last week. And I shared with you that, that I'm not a prophet. I'm not an expert on, you know, the end times and things like that. I don't teach a lot on it because I'm, I don't, I'm not sure I fully understand it. And there's so many different visions or versions of it out there. And many of them have scriptures to support them. But I know when Jesus is talking about that, he talks about famines, he talks about earthquakes, he talks about natural disasters, he talks about pestilences, and boy, if that's not what this is, I don't know what a pestilence is. And then he says, and that's the beginning of sorrows. And then he talks about the next phase that's going to come along. And all I shared last week is I believe, and it's it's my view, I know there are many others that share this, that we have shifted into a new spiritual arena, a new spiritual season where there's a, there's a dramatic, it's been going on for a long time, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a drama unfolding in the spirit realm between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this earth, the kingdoms of Satan. And the church is here as God's army, God's weapon, God's hand, God's voice in this battle in this earth. And we need to realize that what's going on right now is not just COVID-19. What's going on right now is not all the unrest, political, racial, all that stuff. And I'm not saying it's not real. It's all real. But what's behind all this is a great spiritual drama playing out. And the Bible reveals that to us so we would understand that this is ultimately what's ordained to happen. And so this is not, oh my goodness, everything's out of control. No, God tells us ahead of time what's going to happen so that we understand as it begins to unfold that this is, God didn't cause COVID-19, but it's not like it caught Him by surprise either. So there's something going on that's a grand battle that God has already plotted out what is going to happen and we have a role to play in that. But to do that, we have to wake up and realize something's changed. Something's shifted. Because if we keep hoping that everything's going to go back to the way it was before, we're going to be disappointed because I don't think it is. Now, I'm not saying we can't gather together without mass, but there's a spiritual shift that's taken place that's ordained by God, and He's put us here for such a time as this, which means He's provided everything we're going to need. He's provided the strength, the grace, the resources, everything we're going to need. As long as He's provided it, but as long as we take our eyes off of what's going on in the world and set our eyes on Him and what His plan is and what His purpose is, and if we'll do that, then we're beginning to build our lives on something that can't be shaken. And we looked in Hebrews 12 where, where the writer of Hebrews is saying there's going to come a time when God's going to shake the heavens and the earth so that everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that the things that are of God, established by God, they can't be shaken. So if your life is shaken right now, then that tells us that you, you tells you that you've built into yourself and you built your life on things of this world that obviously can be shaken. But if you built your life on the kingdom of God and putting first the kingdom of God and seeking the kingdom of God, this can't shake you. I'm not shaken. I have days when I get, have to fight discouragement. I've had days when I've had to fight fear, but I know where to go to get my confidence back. And it's not the CNN, Fox News, or the Internet. Or Brother Doodad or Sister Whatchamacallit, who's got the latest word on Facebook out there. God's Word is what we stand on. 
God's word is what this church is established on and what this church is committed to continue to be established upon. So we're not going to be moved by the latest trend, the latest thing. It's got to come based on what... Because there's no authority unless it's come from God. There's no moral authority for what's right or wrong unless it's come from God. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. All right. So, and then we looked at the end of John 16, where Jesus... I'm not going to get finished today. I've already been off track long enough. John chapter 16, Jesus ends his, his time of his ministry with his disciples by preparing them, not just for his leaving, but for what's going to come upon them when he leaves. Because understand this, Jesus came for a number of reasons, but one of them was to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. And then when he left, he left that commission and that mission to 11 scared, frightened, confused men. And so he's preparing them for that. And he says to them, when I leave, you're going to experience tribulation. That just means trouble. But fear not, for I've overcome the trouble. I've overcome the world. So what we're going to begin to look at today, and we're not really going to get into the depth of it because I've already gotten off from that, is how do we do that? So let's, I think what I began as I was preparing this, I began to realize, no, we need to understand a little more what this world is that we're called to overcome. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We talked last week about there's 20 times, over 20 times in the New Testament that we're told to overcome. So that's a warning. There's something... So if you're upset that you have to overcome things, welcome to the church. Welcome to being a Christian. I told you that last week that when I was walking in the back door a week or so ago and it was just everything felt like it was piling in on me. And I just walked in and I said, God, I am... In, in September, I'm 75 years old. I'm too old for this. This is hard. This is just too hard. And I felt such a compassionate response from him. It was, well, and I knew what he meant. It's like, so what? I didn't call you to something that was easy. And the moment I heard that, it jerked the slack out of me. Because if I thought See, when we think we're overwhelmed because this is too hard, it's because we're expecting something easy. But the soldiers in the middle of a war, when bullets are flying and they're in a foxhole, they understand what they're in. So they don't sit in that foxhole saying, oh, I wish I weren't in the foxhole. They may not want to be in the foxhole, but they recognize that if I just start feeling sorry for myself, I'm going to get a bullet in my head. I have to be on alert. I have to accept the fact that we're in a war. We have to accept the fact that we're in a spiritual war and there are things that we have to overcome in this earth as Christians. And once we accept that, the ability to overcome it is in you and that's when it will engage with you. But if we're still trying to avoid the challenges and the difficulties, then the Holy Spirit can't engage with that because we're not pulling in the same direction He's pulling in it. We're trying to get our flesh patterned. We're trying to feel better. We're trying to hope to enjoy life. And we can enjoy life, but your purpose as the church is not to enjoy life. Our purpose as a church is to fulfill His commission. Once we engage in that, life is a joy. But the fight is against His will, not with, it's the joy is when we flow with His will. Now I'm off on another tangent. All right. But in order to, we've got to understand the background of what this war is that we're in. Otherwise, we don't understand what the issues are, what it is we're fighting for. One of the differences, I was, the, Denny, I was in some others of you. I was, uh, I was, although he went there, I was a young man at the time of the Vietnam War. And one of the challenges for this nation is, and some of the soldiers was, it wasn't clear what we were fighting for. Whereas in other wars, it's been very clear what we were fighting for. We were either attacked as a nation, like in Pearl Harbor, or you had clearly things out there, like 
Nazism and fascism, things that were clearly wrong, and we were fighting against what was wrong. And so when people can see what we're fighting for, then people can get engaged in it, and they'll have endurance to go to the end. But when we don't know what it is we're fighting for, then it makes it hard to be in the middle of this fight. So we need to understand what it is. So what is this world that the Bible talks about overcoming? What is this world that Jesus overcame and we're to overcome? Well, in order to send the backgrounds of this world, we've got to go right back to the beginning, <clears throat> to the book of Genesis, to the Garden of Eden, the way God created things. And God, let's start with this principle. And, and, and <laughs> God is the creator of all things. Everything that exists, exists solely because He created it. And it exists solely for His pleasure and His purposes. We're sons and daughters of the living God, but we're not creators. We belong to the family of God, but this didn't come from us. So we're not on an equal standing with the Creator because we can't create anything. And so God created the heavens and the earth, and then God created His most precious crowning creation, which was man. Man is the only thing God created that He created in His own image. And He created man to have a relationship with. So that man, we talked about this several weeks ago, we talked about God as love. He created a man, and by that I mean generic, men and women, so that He could pour out His love and His blessing on someone that could receive it and then respond out of their own will back to Him. But in that first creation, there was no question who was the Creator and who was the creation. And God created a special place called Eden, which literally means in Hebrew, place of delight, overwhelming delight. He created this special place for them to enjoy and to eat of every tree. He, in, in some translations say, He commanded them to enjoy it. So God's not this, this mean, old, stingy God that doesn't want you to enjoy things. He created a place for them to enjoy James says he created all things for us to freely enjoy. But here's what happened. Oh, the only thing they could not enjoy, the only thing they could not eat of is one tree. Imagine this. See, religion says all these things you can't do and the one or two things you can do. God says, hey, here it is. Enjoy it. Eat it all. There's just one thing you can't do. And that tree, that line drew two things. It drew a boundary that had to remind them every time they saw that tree, I'm not God. And we need those things in our life to remind us, I can't go there. I'm not God. I don't have time to get off in it. That's one of the purposes of the tithe. The tithe is to remind you that everything you have isn't yours. It's us. You're a steward of something God gave you. The power to make that money came from Him. The job or whatever you're receiving it from came from Him. And the tithe is a reminder, I don't own it. He's entrusted it to me. So at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, you have this perfect, perfect utopia where God is in this wonderful relationship, nothing's interfering it, because everybody understands their right roles. God's the creator, they're the creation. Chapter 3, Satan shows up on the scene. And Satan, as I mentioned last week, this is part of this spiritual drama. Satan hates everything that's precious to God. He can't destroy God, he tried that. He can't destroy God's ultimate plan. But what He can do, what He's learned to do, what we allow Him to do, is to destroy what's precious in God's sight, and that's you, and that's me. So He came to separate this man and this woman from their Creator. And how did He do that? I know we, you know... 
I know that, you know, our culture thinks he did it with an apple. First of all, it didn't say it was an apple. It was a fruit of a tree. But the tree God told them they could not eat of is significant. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you say, well, why, why, was, why would that be a bad thing? Because, well, let's go through the story, and that will show it to you. God, back up. My mind's going ahead of myself in different directions. God designed them and us, knowing our limitations. Just like whatever the manufacturer of your car is. I got a, a son-in-law that... Anyway, I had a son-in-law. And, and one time, he rented a Range Rover to go on a trip. And he decided to take the Range Rover off-road. And he took it down into a gully with rocks. And he found out that there were limitations to what that Range Rover was intended to handle. And he got it hung up. On a, I did that one time when we first moved back here from Oklahoma. I had a four-wheel drive Subaru. And I was invincible with a Subaru. Because <laughs> it's four-wheel drive. And we just lived in Oklahoma for four years where if they get snow, it's that much. And I'm, we're living in northern Massachusetts now. And we got snow. And I'm going to go bust through snow blanks, banks. And I tried to take this Subaru forward through a snowbank. And I found four wheels drive doesn't do much good when all four wheels are off the ground. Because I ran it into the snowbank, it slid up on top of the snowbank, and I got four wheels spinning. I exceeded the limitations of the manufacturer's specifications and purposes for that vehicle. Now listen carefully. God does not, did not design man with the capability of discerning good and evil on his own. If you think he did, just look at the world today and see what kind of job we've done. So what does Satan come to do? All God required of them was that they simply obey what he said because God understood the difference between good and evil for them. So God is saying to them, everything I provided for you is good for you, but the knowledge of good and evil on your own, I know, is not good for you. So I've told you not to eat it, partake of it. Satan comes, and immediately comes, first of all, to get them to question God's Word. So he starts out, he doesn't even say, hello, how are you? He says, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the mistake the woman makes, is she, man, man makes his own in a minute, the mistake the woman made is she's trying to defend or explain what God said. Oh, have I made that mistake before? God never told her or them to defend His Word. God never told them to explain His commandment. All He expected was them to simply do what He said to do or not do what He told them not to do. It's that simple. But Satan... Oh, if we get off... Satan wants to complicate it by getting them to begin to analyze what God said and figure out what He really meant and how does it really apply here. There's a story, we may just spend the day here. There's a story that Jesus told about a, a rich young ruler that came to Him. And, and Jesus didn't approach him. He approached the rich, young, the, the rich young ruler, approached Jesus. And what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, and, and we can tell as you get into the story 
that he already thought he was there. He was just looking for some validation from Jesus. And Jesus said, well, you shall... And Jesus puts it back, what do you say? Well, you shall keep the commandments. Which commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he says, Jesus, that's great. Then do them. In other words, fulfill, obey the commandments. But now he has to complicate it. Because the obedience is really simple. Those of you with parents, those of you with parents, yeah, but those of you that are parents, you know whether your child obeyed you or not. It's real simple. The centurion described this. He said, I know what obedience is. I say to my soldier, go, and he goes. I say to him, come, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. It's real simple. If they do what you say to do, they obey you. If they don't, they didn't. It's not if they understand it, if they... So, I'm getting story on top of story here. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and now Jesus has simply said, all you have to do is keep the commandments. And so he wants to understand the commandments. So he says, well, which one? And then Jesus says this, here's what you need to, oh no, what else? He says, what else do I have to do? He says, it's real simple, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And it says, the rich young ruler walked away sorrowfully. Luke's version said, Jesus loved him as he walked away. Notice Jesus didn't chase him. What was going on there? The rich young ruler would not accept that it's simply a matter of obedience. He wanted to understand and he wanted to bring the nuances about it. He wanted to understand what God meant by this. And so you won't understand what God means until you obey it. This was not where I was planning to go today. Until we obey what God says, we can't really understand it. In fact, you can't have faith until you obey. Because faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. So many Christians today want to have faith, but they don't want to obey. This is a real jump up, down, shout, run around the church message, isn't it? <laughs> but it will set you free. So what happens in the garden? Satan comes, Satan comes, in, oh, I'm already off anyway. Most of you know I was a lawyer for 20 years. I didn't do a lot of courtroom work, but I did some courtroom work in the federal courts. And they have rules of evidence. And the rules of evidence are to govern how questions can be asked. Because the way you ask a question can control the answer. Famous old joke. Denny, have you stopped beating your wife? Say, that question you can't answer without getting in trouble. Because if he says yes, that implies he was beating Dawn and he stopped, which would have been good, but he, didn't, he doesn't beat her. And if he says no, that implies that he's beating her. So the way that question is formed automatically controls the limits of the answer. Everybody follow me so far? Yeah. Satan is craftier than any lawyer. <laughs> So the form of the question automatically begins to gain control of the conversation. And notice he comes to her with questions. Has God said? Oh, when that got through to me one day, I realized all the times I've been tempted to doubt God's Word. And I suddenly realized every thought to doubt God's Word didn't come from me, it came from Satan to get me to question God's word. Has God, and the moment she entertained that, the moment she stepped out from underneath simple obedience of God's question, and the moment she began to engage in trying to understand and explain it, she stepped out from underneath the protection of God's authority, and now she was trying to handle Satan on her own. Did she understand this was happening? No. That's why Timothy, uh, Peter, Paul's letter to Timothy said she was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. He just disobeyed God. So he was held more accountable than she was. But I want you to see, the moment she begins to do anything with God's Word other than simply cleanly obey it, 
She's now, and this is what his goal was, was to get her to begin to rely on her own understanding of what God meant. We'll say, aren't we supposed to understand the word? Yeah, but you can't understand it if you won't obey it. Because to understand it truly means you're going to have to know you're either obeying it or you're disobeying it. See, Satan's trying to create a middle ground here between obedience and disobedience. It's that middle ground called, I'm trying to understand it and figure it out. And I've had to realize that's an excuse for delaying obedience. So I'm getting off my point here. So he comes to get her by questioning, has God said? And she said, yes, God has said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden, uh, nor except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you shall not touch it. So she's added something to what God said. Now with that opening, because I've said you before, she had no responsibility to answer Satan, and neither do you. In a courtroom, not anybody can, up and, can get up and adjust a judge. Not even the lawyers in a case. You have to get the judge's permission to approach the bench, even if you're one of the lawyers. Why? He has to acknowledge and give you the right to speak. And Adam and Eve were given authority in that garden. And what Satan was after was that authority. And the way he got it was by fooling them to think they could be their own authority. So he tempts her, and now he comes at her because she engaged in the conversation. He's even bolder, and now he outright denies God didn't say that because what God wants to do, He knows that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like Him, knowing the difference between good and evil. So what He was getting her to do was to be like God on her own. To make them assume that they have the right on their own to decide what's right and wrong apart from what God says. So what's behind this is he was tempting them to exercise their own independent judgment, their own independent judgment about what's right and wrong. And the moment they do that, they separated themselves from God's kingdom and God's authority because only God decides what's right and wrong. And man has been in this position ever since. That somehow we think we have the right on our own to determine right from wrong. And what they did and what we followed is they decided, they determined to create their own kingdom with them as king. And, and, and Christians do this. So I'll, God can be king over His kingdom, but I'm king over my kingdom. It's just me. You, and by the way, you can be king over your kingdom. That's what the world's like today. You, you, can, you can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. So you're, you're king, Nick, over your kingdom. All right? And you're king over your kingdom. And, and then you let me be king over my kingdom. So we're all kings over our own kingdom because we decide, we think we have the right to decide what's right from what's wrong. As if we created our kingdom. This is Romans 1. Romans chapter 1 basically says all this. And that's what rebellion is. Rebellion is I have my rights because I'm an individual. The reality is, I have nothing that God didn't create and God doesn't give me. And imagine the patience of God with a world full of people that are claiming their own rights in the face of a God that gives them every breath that they breathe. Their very very breath by which they assert their independence, God gave them that moment. But we don't see this because we're so steeped in this. It's so much a part of the way we think in our culture. So I said that. We're talking about what the world is. What is this world we have to overcome? I need you to get the clock back or I'll just keep going. So everybody started interceding. 
Okay. Does everybody understand this so far? All right. And this is what we were born into. This is what we were born into. We make ourselves God of our own kingdom. This is what <laughs> this is what fuels things like oh boy. <laughs> like abortion rights. And I may step on some of your toes and they'll heal, I'm sorry. But I've got to tell you the truth of what's behind that. What's behind that is a woman asserting a right over her own body. By the way, as a lawyer, I can tell you that does not exist in the Constitution. That was added by a Supreme Court decision by a very liberal court that, that, that couldn't find it in the Constitution. So they, it, I don't, they added something that's not there. All right? But forget our Constitution, it's God's Constitution. And I'm not saying, there aren't, and I don't want to get into the issue of abortion. There may be times when it's justified. I don't want to get into that. I want to talk about the, the very root that's behind, not just abortion, but everything else we're dealing with is self. Oh, that went over big. Self. I have my rights. Where did they come from? Where did, where, where did we get these rights from? Who gave them to us? The only rights we can truly have have to come from God because He's the creator of all things. If I establish my own rights, I'm saying I'm my own God and my own kingdom. This is what humanism is. Getting quiet. And this is the world we were born into as human beings. Sta Satan is still the God of this earth. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 3 says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this earth has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan is still the God of this earth. Over in 1 John chapter 5, Verse, uh, verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who is born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So I went through all of that about God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this earth to show you that the kingdom you and I were born into as human beings is a kingdom that's in rebellion against the kingdom of God. And the rebellion is, we think we've, we have our own rights and we can make decisions of right and wrong for ourselves and we can, we can, we can, we can read God's word, we can, we can quote God's word, we can believe in God, we can go to God's word for help. But I don't have to be subject to God's word except the ones I like. It's called Christian smorgasbord. I pick the scriptures I want to be subject to because they're the ones that God will bless me, God will take care of me, God will heal me, God will prosper me. But I don't like the other ones like deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And all of those that are hard to swallow. Jesus came to reestablish God's kingdom on the earth where He is the king and we are His children. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man... Whoops, I'm getting ahead of my... Verse 18. Therefore, just as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteousness act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Colossians, um, John, first, uh, John chapter 1, verse 9. 
This true light was come into the world which to light up every man into the world. He was in the world, this is Jesus, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He came to establish a new kingdom. He came and was obedient perfectly obedient where the first Adam was disobedient. So this is what was at stake in the garden when Jesus is on his knees praying right before he went to the cross. And all this, can you imagine the pressure that was on him to not do this? This was the pressure that was on him when the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan for 40 days. And Satan comes to tempt him to say, all this kingdom, I'll give you. I know what you came for. You came to get the kingdom back for God. I'll give it to you. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to go to the cross. I'll just give it to you. All you've got to do is bow your knee to me just for a moment and worship me, and I'll give you what you came for. But Jesus understood that if he had disobeyed God in that one thing, he would have been subject still unto the kingdom of Satan. Jesus knew that he had to be perfectly obedient where the first Adam disobeyed. That's why Jesus said over and over again, I only say what I hear my Father say. I only do what I see my Father do. Could Jesus have done all kinds of good things on his own? Yes, but he was perfectly obedient to simply obey everything the Father told him to do day by day, moment by moment. And then the real pressure in that garden that had to be on him. Because Satan knew this was the battle. That if he could get him to do this some other way, and that's what Jesus prayed, is there some other way? Is there some way this cup can pass from me? Is there some other way? And he finally realizes, no. Not my will be done. But we're going to do your will here. And it was his obedience that established God's kingdom on this earth a second time. And Colossians 1.13 tells us, they can put it up there, we have it, that, that, that when you came to Christ, you changed kingdoms. He delivered us from the power, that word actually is the authority of darkness, and transferred or conveyed us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So if you're a Christian, you were taken out of the kingdom of this world and you were placed into the new kingdom under the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And now we're in the process of learning how to submit and live into the rules of this kingdom and under the authority of this King. And Jesus knew that he was leaving. Now, I'm not going to be able to finish it today. Lord, where's a good place to end this? Well, I'll start. So we've changed kingdoms. The kingdom that we're born into is not of this world. And this is what I was talking about last week. And this is what so many Christians don't realize. We're trying to live... We, we belong to a kingdom the body of Christ, that is not of this world, but it's in this world. Years ago I read a book that gave a wonderful example of this. I don't remember the name of it, but there's this particular species of spiders that live underwater, but they can't live underwater, but they do. They need to breathe. So what they do is they, above, ground, above the water, they collect bubbles of air on their legs. And they go down into the water and they build a bubble around them in the water. So the water is a hostile environment for them. In order to live in that environment, they have to bring into that environment the air from the environment that they belong to. And that's a great example of what a Christian is. Because a Christian's been joined to Christ. 
and therefore we've been taken out of this world. Our body's still here, but our spirit's been taken out of this world, and it's been joined to Christ, so that what all He is, we are, because we're joined to Him. We're going to get into that next week. But most Christians are living their lives as if we are just like the rest of the world. This is why Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, you're carnal. You're doing just what the world does. You're fighting. There's divisions among you. You're jealous. You're envious. You're just like this world is. You're acting like mere men. And I read that one. Wait a minute. Paul's implying we're not supposed to be like mere men. We're supposed to be different than mere men and women because we're not. We're sons and daughters of the living God. And the kingdom of God, we're going to see tomorrow, next week, is within you. I mentioned that last week. We're going to look at those scriptures. The kingdom of God is within you. So how do I get the kingdom of God... This is where we ended up last week. How do I get the kingdom of God that's in me to be coming to the outside where I can experience the peace and the joy? And Paul gives us that secret. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world. The word conformed there is a word that means be pressured from the outside. It's a word that was used when they would mint coins. When they would mint coins, they would take a piece of copper or gold or whatever the metal was, and they would have a mold and under pressure that mold would come down and because of the force of that pressure and the, 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 the mold would now take on the appearance of whatever that figure or head was carved in. Right? And Paul says that's what the world's trying to do. The world's trying to pressure you from the outside to be just like it. It doesn't matter to the world what's on the inside if they can't see it from what's on the outside. So he says, therefore, do not let that happen to you. Do not let the pressures of this world conform you to act like and respond like the way the world responds. Instead, he says, be transformed. The Greek word transformed is a word that we get metamorphosis out of. And I don't have time this morning to go into all the details of that, but the word literally means in Greek to take what's already on the inside of you and to work that so that it comes to the outside so that others can now see what's really on the inside of you. Satan's number one scheme in what we're dealing with right now is to keep the pressure on us so that we think like the world, we respond, react like the world, and we talk like the world. And Paul says, here's how you do it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by changing how you think about what's going on in the world. And we'll pick up here next week. Father, we thank you this morning. As I've endeavored to allow you to speak what you want to speak, we've gone in different directions than I had thought. And I trust, Lord, today that the Holy Spirit is taking what we said and begin to work in all of our hearts, including mine. We confess to you this morning, Father, that for what you've, play, what you've put us here to do, and more than that, what you've put us here to be, we cannot do in our strength. We do not have the wisdom we do not have the plans. We are totally in your hands. And so we yield to you this morning. I pray for people here this morning and people that are within the sound of my voice that are struggling right now with these pressures, that are struggling with the fear, that are struggling with the uncertainty, and, and, it, and it may not be even theory to them. They may be living in a very difficult situation. They may be battling this disease. They may be, they may be out of a job, and there may be tremendous financial pressure on them. But help us to see today, Father. Help them through the Spirit of God who lives in them today. Help us to see today, Father, that there is residing in us a kingdom, 
that cannot be shaken. There is residing in us one, the Holy Spirit, who has the answers, who has the strength, if we'll just learn to yield to Him. He knows what we need to let go of. He knows what we need to seek. He has every answer. And just as He helped me find my wife's Bible this week, He has the answer to everything that we need. Help us as we go through this week to see that. And now I pray, Father, for those that may be watching or even here this morning that can't say for certain that Christ lives in them, that can't say for certain that they are in the family of God, that cannot say for certain